Have you ever wondered if you were alone in the universe? Did we get here by accident? Or are we the creation of an intelligent designer? Welcome to Darwin or Design, focusing on the continuing debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. What does science reveal and what are the experts saying? Darwin or Design, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida. And now your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design, where we tackle each and every week the biggest questions that can confront humanity and us individually, and that is the origin of life, the origin of humanity, the origin of the entire universe. Was it planned? Did it just sort of come by chance, by material, unintelligent processes? Were we an afterthought of an evolutionary process, or were we the focus of a plan by a creative, loving designer? And so we're excited to be able to present the evidence that really touches on those key questions. And we have with us on the program today one of the most prolific authors I know on intelligent design. His name is Dr. Cornelius Hunter. He has a graduate degree in biophysics, Ph.D. in biophysics from the University of Illinois. And the best thing about Cornelius Hunter is that I can understand his books. They're written at a level that is packed with information, but exciting to read. And so we're going to talk about his three books and I think something else that he's working on that's equally exciting. And I can also announce that we are going to be talking in the next few weeks to some of the leading lights of the intelligent design movement, including Dr. Michael Behe, the author of Darwin's Black Box, which really opened up a new phase of the design movement just about 10 or 12 years ago. We're also so thrilled that we have many, many people listening to us now on the Bridge FM frequencies in the New York and New Jersey area. And so welcome each and every one of you that's uh, beginning to listen in to Darwin or Design. We hope you make it a weekly habit to join us and to learn as we're exploring new topics every week. We have with us on the phone today Dr. Cornelius Hunter. He is the author of several key books that came out in the last 10, 12 years. One of them is called Darwin's God, and the sequel, the follow-up, was Darwin's Proof. And we're going to talk to him about not only those two books, but what he's been doing in the recent years to expand on his critique and really take this in new directions and talk about the evidence for and against design and for and against Darwinian evolution on his blog, which has been one of my exciting adventures, is entering and being uh, instructed through Dr. Cornelius Hunter's blog. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hunter. Oh, thank you, Dr. Woodward. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Okay. And we are so excited because I remember very vividly going to a convention, a booksellers convention, just a few years ago, where your book, uh, Darwin's Proof, was being featured alongside uh, my own book, doubts about Darwin at the same time, and we were able to sign autographs together and give talks to different groups of people who came at that uh, convention, who came to the assigned venues that we were presenting in. And I really appreciated so very, very much the approach that you had of dealing with theological issues that are raised not only on the creation side, but the Darwin side of this equation. So we're going to be talking about that whole approach that you have taken, and that is analyzing the arguments that are coming from Darwinian evolutionary scientists, theorists, and how they are employing this kind of strange kind of reasoning, the theological reasoning. I guess, would you see that's one of your major contributions to this discussion? 
Oh, yes, yes, Tom, I, it is, uh, and thank you so much. Um, it, it, it may seem strange, but only because of what the headlines have been telling us. If you look really at the, what the evolutionists are saying, well, over and over again, they make religious claims. And it really is a religious theory in that sense. And so what, in your book, your first of the trilogy of books that you've produced, The uh, Darwin's God, you really address the issue that is often brought in, the issue of evil. Like in the natural world, there are things that you know may surprise us or disgust us or shock us. And so I guess, was it Darwin himself that started that tradition or others? That yeah, got, interestingly got, enough, it wasn't Darwin, and uh, the Darwinists want you to think that evolution started with Darwin. It really did not. It started easily two centuries before hmm. in the uh, pre-Enlightenment uh, 17th century uh, with many Anglicans, uh, Lutherans, uh, a few Roman Catholics, uh, all cogitating and, and uh, trying to solve this problem of evil as well as other complex and subtle uh, theological issues about creation. Hmm. They were grappling with, you know, science was uncovering new evidence about the world, and uh, new questions were being raised about, uh, did God create this? Did natural laws create this? And so forth. And so, uh, you know, many people may not have heard of people like Thomas Burnett, um, Nicholas Malebranche, uh, even uh, Leibniz, Christian Wolff, Immanuel Kant, etc., etc. The, the list goes on and on of influential people who were influential in their day, scientists, philosophers, theologians, who really laid the groundwork, and they were calling for a purely naturalistic explanation for theological reasons. And this is what so often uh, escapes us in the debate, and we get mired into these, well, they're atheists, or they're, uh, religious, they have a religious axe to grind, and so forth. It really is a much more nuanced and, and complex debate than that. And Darwin came along... Uh, the foundation had really been laid for him, and he over and over again made religious arguments and referred to God and referred to what God would and would not do, but he didn't have to define his religious uh, premises. They were given by the time he came around. Hmm. And so you had these really uh, uh, iffy scientific arguments, very, very questionable scientific evidences, but behind those were powerful religious claims. So Darwin, would, you could read pages and pages of kind of boring uh, speculation, and then he'd come to a, a, a bold pronouncement. But we know that evolution must be true. We know that this could not have been created because uh, of the evil or uh, the apparent lack of design or, or this or that. So that was really the powerful argument that Darwin had to make. And evolutionists are now finally starting to, to really elucidate this uh, Elliot Sober had a good paper out earlier this year. He's a philosopher, an evolutionist, and he really started starting to put this story together that, gee, you know, the, the powerful arguments here are really not uh, so much pro-evolution as they are negative against creation. And if you can rule out creation, if you can rule out design, then uh, evolution is the only game in town, regardless of how weak the actual theory is. Hmm. That's kind of what we're dealing with here. Now, you actually initiated this uh, trilogy of, of books that you produced, not counting, of course, the online uh, work recently, but you initiated your work uh, trying to understand that that God was playing a role in Darwin's 
reasoning, like you're saying, he was thinking of God would have done things this way. And so when he looks in nature and he sees something over here, X or Y or Z, and he says, okay, those three things don't fit my conception of God would do. So therefore, the argument, help me if I'm understanding this right, the argument to some extent is God wouldn't have done it this way. And so then it's a theological argument? Yeah, absolutely. That's what it boils down to. It's more nuanced than that if you really get into the theology, but that's what it boils down to. You know, Tom, the way I got into this was I I really had nothing against evolution. I was just curious, and I had heard that it was a fact, and that kind of piqued my interest. Um, You don't often hear scientists speaking of a a theory in the the historical sciences as a fact. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what the evidence is. It must be very compelling. So I, I just picked up some references and started reading, and and uh, realized that really, you know, there was no beast there. There really wasn't, uh, the, the scientific evidence wasn't uh, backing it up. Mm-hmm. But then I ran into these curious religious and metaphysical claims about God uh, now, uh, here and there, and they were really making the point. And that this would be in textbooks, as well as popular books and magazines and, uh, and so forth. And uh, so I just started tracking that down and wondered, gee, this is interesting. I really didn't know what to make of it at first. Mm-hmm. But you, you trace it, and, and farther and farther and farther back, it goes all the way back to Darwin, and you, know, you read Darwin's book, and it's all through his book. Hmm. And then you say, well, gee, did it really start there? No, it didn't. And uh, it really came from Christian thinkers in the centuries leading up to Darwin as they were grappling with this idea. And Darwin was honestly trying to, to grapple with this. So I, I like to try and you know, build the strongest case and really understand what evolutionists are saying and not hmm. paint them as well, this is just atheism, right. or, or there are a bunch of dummies right. who made glaring mistakes. They actually do have uh, a very powerful and, and very uh, reasonable argument. It's just that it isn't scientific. It's, yeah. The science itself is, is incredibly weak and problematic. Right. We're talking today to Cornelius Hunter on Darwin or Design. We have about a minute left, uh, Dr. Hunter, and I guess I may, con- may break in and call you Cornelius from uh, time to time since uh, we know each other personally. In about 30 seconds, would you say that your second book then builds on the first book, Darwin's Proof Builds on Darwin's God? Yes, it does. It, it's a sequel, and it goes farther into the, the histories and the, and the arguments, and also looks at things from a, a Christian point of view and, and how we should look upon these arguments that did come out of the Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we can talk more about that in the, in the, in the next segment, but it, it's really interesting how the different uh, religious views play on this question. Right. I'm going to ask you to bring you up uh, in the next segment a little bit about the Job quote that you pointed out to me about the, uh, the bird that is uh, showing some foolishness. I'm Dr. Tom Woodward, and we will be returning to Darwin or Design, where we're having a fantastic conversation with Dr. Cornelius Hunter. We'll be right back. Darwin or Design is brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Begun in 1975 as a student forum on the campus of Princeton University, the C.S. Lewis Society seeks to empower believers and engage skeptics with biblical truth and evidences for faith, communicating the case for Christ and authentic Christianity to those in the academic world, both students and professors, engaging on issues including intelligent design, historical apologetics, and comparative worldviews. In addition to Darwin or Design, the C.S. 
C.S. Lewis Society also sponsors debates and events worldwide, distributing cutting-edge apologetics tools to workers in over 85 countries and speaking on college and university campuses both here and abroad. The C.S. Lewis Society continues to provide information, materials, and opportunities key to making a reasoned defense of the Christian faith. To learn more about the C.S. Lewis Society and to access articles and resources mentioned during Darwin or Design, log on today to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, focusing on the debate between intelligent design and Darwinism with your host, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're having a fantastic conversation with one of my most uh, favorite mentors in the area of Darwin's God. Now, that may be a shocking concept or term to some of you. Uh, Did Darwin have a God concept? Yes, he did. And I got to know Dr. Cornelius Hunter at a conference, and we've been friends ever since. He has written fantastic books on three major topics. Uh, He's going to talk a little bit more in a second about the blind spot of evolutionary biology, uh, science's blind spot. But I want to revisit the questions that we were raising just a moment ago on this concept of Darwin's God and then Darwin's proof. Because Dr. Hunter uh, has really done his homework and understood and brought out into the open the theological thoughts, ideas, and reasonings that are often used, oddly enough, to defend or to promote the Darwinian theory of macro or large-scale evolution. Uh, Dr. Cornelius Hunter, before we get into the questions that I'm going to pose related to those two books, the background you have is, I think, very, very interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into science and how you completed your terminal degree there at the University of Illinois? Well, uh, I uh, have both engineering, aerospace engineering degrees and biophysics and computational biology degrees. Hmm. And uh, like as you said, my, my PhD is out of the University of Illinois. And I just uh, fell in love with the life sciences and uh, at the same time became really intrigued with the theory of evolution. And as I mentioned earlier, had nothing against it, but was just uh, uh, very much intrigued with the fact, with the claim that it is a fact. Hmm. And how could that be backed up? And soon uh, ran into theological claims. So that's kind of a, a parallel interest I had was uh, you know, the, the, uh, the life sciences themselves, but uh, but this whole area of evolution and and how religion plays a part in it. So as you finished that terminal degree that completed that PhD in biophysics at the University of Illinois, was that um, fairly soon before you began your writing your three books? It was uh, at the same time. I, the book came out right when I graduated, coincidentally. Hmm. The first book, Darwin's God. And so I was, I had that, I'd been working on that for a while. It's like a graduation present to the public. Uh, huh? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we were getting acquainted at these various meetings and banquets and events that we were, you know, both uh, featured as co-authors, one of the things that struck me is that you went into the idea behind creation itself. In other words, Sometimes we have the idea that all creation is simply to manifest perfection. And if we see any lack of perfection, if we see any creature that lacks this or that quality, that, boy, we think that creature should have this or that quality, then it's almost like, well, I guess God wasn't involved here or God blew it here. But you brought out a passage from the book of Job, and you shared it with me, and I'll never forget. I literally stood there almost stunned 
with what you shared because I had never really focused in on that 39th chapter of Job and and seen what was right there under my nose. Could you uh, share with us what you saw what you saw from that particular passage that helps us to understand creation? Yes, I will. But to set the context, just to reiterate what you just said about this, this idea of perfection, it really is true, and it was quite prevalent in the years of Darwin and, and the centuries leading up to Darwin. Uh, in, in England, they had a tradition of natural theology, and uh, many famous writers and thinkers were arguing just that, that the world had to be perfect, that everything had to fit together just perfectly. And they really were left uh, without an explanation for evil or for things that we just don't like, uh, this gritty world, parasites and things that don't look very well designed. Mosquitoes. Uh, predation. Mm-hmm. Uh, death and disease and so forth. Uh, it was a very idealized world that Darwin was born into, uh, this concept. And it was people like uh, uh, David Hume before Darwin, and then Darwin had an easy time of, of shooting this down and just saying, well, gee, if this is the way um, nature is supposed to be, um, I guess it must have evolved. There must be some natural processes because certainly God would not have done this. And so that, uh, that, that verse that you were thinking of, uh, Job 39.17, which uh, the writer there is, is discussing the ostrich, uh, and that passage talks about other, other animals as well, the donkey, and it talks about how the ostrich does not guard her eggs very well. They get trampled underfoot, and she's, she's not very wise. And uh, then it gives the reason. Do you, mind, do you mind if I jump in here and just read this passage? I, I have it in front of me. It starts um, actually with verse 13. Job 39.13, the ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love, for she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned, key key verse here, because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. God did not endow her with wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, God did it. It wasn't uh, the natural laws. It wasn't mm-hmm. evolution. So here we have a tradition uh, that would uh, not uh, go along with, with the evolutionary explanation that you know God must have created everything perfectly into our liking, to mm-hmm. our sensibilities. Yeah. So and uh, it, it, it highlights the fact that in evolution you have these implicit religious claims being made that go kind of unspoken and just assumed. And uh, when you find a major tradition like this uh, very much going against that, you realize, ah, there, there really are different views within the different uh, traditions of, of theism and even within Christianity. And um, unfortunately today, what we often hear is, well, there are, there are the religious people and then there are the scientific people. Mm-hmm. The religion versus science battle, and that really is the last thing that this is about. Right. Um, this is about uh, uh, religious claims being made, and uh, in the name of science. Right. We're talking. Let let me just uh, explain. If you're joining us uh, here on the Darwin or Design program, uh, we're talking to Dr. Cornelius Hunter. He is the author of fantastic books: uh, Darwin's Proof, Darwin's God, and then we're going to be talking in a moment about his third book, a fantastic uh, edition, the completion of that trilogy dealing with science's a blind spot. Uh, Dr. Hunter, would you think then that um, 
it's conceivable. This is uh, something I've said in my classes, and you, as my kind of fact checker or theology checker, tell me if I'm on the right track. I sometimes have said, inspired by you, inspired by your work in this area, have said that God has multiple purposes in producing this or that creature, this or that aspect of the universe in his sovereignty, and thus he may create, in this case, a creature which uh, manifests the the uh, the lack of of wisdom as kind of a teaching moment. I mean, is that in other words, the universe is like a grand teaching machine? Is that valid in your view? Well, it's certainly uh, a possibility in my view. I, I absolutely. I, the proverb talks about how the dog returns to its vomit mm-hmm. um, and makes all sorts of analogies. There's all sorts of analogies between you know, different animals and people, and how the animals are, are like symbolic of certain. Uh, Certain ways of acting. So yes, this is certainly a possibility. I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a theologian. I, I, I can't comment on. I can't make a commentary on Job 39. But yeah, yeah, sure. It, 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 there's all kinds of possibilities, and that's the point. Is is uh, we can't just go making theological claim, particular controversial theological claims, mm-hmm. and then passing them off as though, as though they're a fact. And those, uh, we all need to agree with these, and then, and therefore, uh, the, the scientific conclusion is evolution must be true. That just doesn't follow. Right. The let me just re- recollect for you and the audience the um, something that happened to me as I was debating the great biologist Michael Ruse just about a year and a half, two years ago. Michael Ruse, of course, is the one in the Expelled movie who's who insists that uh, life may have started on the backs of crystals. Is his is his uh, famous statement, and Dr. Ruse and I were in front of an auditorium at the university up in Orlando, Valencia Community College. Actually, is the name of that uh, esteemed institution, and he said, "You know, how could God exist as the creator if Toulouse-Lautrec had this, you know, deformed foot, this famous club foot? I mean, God should have moved down, come down, and and corrected that foot." And I'm thinking, that struck me as a silly. A kind of a theological argument in line of what you've been saying, right? Absolutely, and it's just, you, you just run into these over and over and over again. And and to be fair to to, to Michael Ruse, his his uh, crystals comment was simply a reflection of evolutionary thought. Oh yes, right, yeah, that contemporary thinking. Mm-hmm. It's just how silly the theory is, mm-hmm. but yeah, you you would just you, you just can't get around the religious claims. They are they are inherent in the very theory uh, of evolution. So. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll just see it everywhere in textbooks, popular books, uh, and so forth, uh, or else they're implicit. They, they may not yes. state them implicitly, so the, explicitly, but they're, they're between the lines. So the irony is that evolutionary theory, in many ways, and on many points of, of concern, rests not upon empirical compelling evidence, but upon theological speculations, or at least ideas. Right. In fact, you could go further and say it is in spite of the empirical evidence. Okay. <laughs> Darwin had to talk around and, and, and uh, make up reasons and thought experiments for, gee, you know, well, it, it, our breeding experiments reveal that there do seem to be limits. Goethe had already talked uh, about that. Everyone knew uh, the English were good breeders. They mm-hmm. knew uh, there, were, there were limits. And so Darwin had to make up a thought experiment about, well, gee, you know, in nature, these limits aren't there. Okay, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. compelling. Uh, well, the fossils show abrupt appearance. Eh, well, the fossils aren't uh, complete. Okay, mm-hmm. so now we're going against the evidence. Uh, all of these are possible, of course. There's nothing right. uh, impossible about this, but it's it's not. Uh, we're not we're not using science to 
to derive likely theories. Right. Rather, we're coming up with something that can't be falsified mm-hmm. because we're being driven by our metaphysics. And above all, we don't want to be driven by metaphysics. And speaking of driving, we're driving very close to the edge of our next break. We're talking to Cornelius Hunter. We're going to be right back and be talking with uh, Dr. Hunter about his uh, second and third book, uh, which really laid the groundwork for a very powerful new uh, concept of intelligent design and the critique of Darwinian macroevolutionary theory. I'm Dr. Tom Woodward. We'll be right back on Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, focusing on the debate between intelligent design and Darwinism with your host, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're excited uh, to be talking to Dr. Cornelius Hunter. He is a graduate from the University of Illinois with a Ph.D. in biophysics. And I'll bet he knows a lot about thermodynamics, Bill Carl. <laughs> Should I break into that area or just leave it Here alone? Here we go. Thermodynamics. Thermo, thermodynamics. And so we're uh, thrilled to welcome again, if you're uh, from the New York or New Jersey area, listening to one of the Bridge FM frequencies. We're excited that you are joining us on Saturday morning. And, of course, uh, we're originating from our studios here in Tampa Bay, WTBN AM 570 and 910. Uh, not too far from the Tampa International Airport, where fortunately we do not have a problem with roaring jets. Not often. Oh, not often. Very rarely, <laughs> fortunately, because of the soundproofing here in the studio. And we have a very intelligently designed studio here, and we have a very intelligently designed set of books that have been produced by an extremely intelligent Dr. Cornelius Hunter. As we mentioned, that he has written the books Darwin's God, a very ironic and almost attention-getting title. He's uh, followed up uh, just about the time that I was writing my book, Doubts About Darwin. We were circulating and giving talks on his book and my book. Of course, he would give a talk on his book, and I would give a talk on my book. That's fairly logical. But his book <laughs> was called Darwin's Proof. And then he came out with a third book, and we'll get to that in this uh, segment. But I want to talk about, uh, Dr. Hunter, I want to talk about your incredible Incredible blog. I mean, capital I, underlines, italics, everything. Darwinsgod.blogspot.com. And we will link to that from our website, apologetics.org, and our sister entity, ARN.org, the two entities that are really um, bringing forth these resources on intelligent design to you each week. Darwinsgod, with a hyphen between the two, dot blogspot.com is my blue you know blue ribbon metal you know five star you name it you got it uh how do you manage a blog that comments almost every day on this topic of creation evolution well thank you so much tom but uh, a couple things once you know having having uh, written the three books uh, i do have plenty of material to draw upon and i've really been studying this for practically 20 years and there's just so much in the news these days, uh, you can't hardly keep up with it. And much of it is the scientific research that's coming out uh, at a steady stream, uh, presenting problems with the theory of evolution. Hmm. And so you're having to stay on top of that. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you use a number of other sources, but uh, to actually uh, kind of keep the finger on the pulse of what's been happening. What are some of the most exciting recent developments, let's say in the last six months or so, that, that seem to point that, you know, neo-Darwinism is really beginning to suffer some major structural 
you know, collapse or at least uh, damage, uh, cracks in the foundation? Well, I, I, maybe we should switch to recent years. Um, recent you know, years. It's hard for things just to come up in, in a few months' time. This, these, these research uh, trends occur over years. But I would say one of them is the finding that uh, when we see species adapt and uh, respond to environmental pressure, it's, it's via a complex adaptation machine. It's not just uh, unguided mutations that just happen to do the right thing. And this has been the evolutionary story for 150 years, yeah, these, or 100 years. Uh, these mutations happen, and uh, the good ones just uh, were lucky, and uh, the species uh, adapted to the new environmental pressure. Uh, Lamarck, before Darwin, said, well, you know, really, there's, there's adaptation. Maybe it occurs uh, as a response to environmental pressure. Well, if you're responding to environmental pressure, that means you're intelligent. There's some sort of an adaptation machine that's actually sensing what the need is and implementing the need. And that, of course, was flatly rejected by the neo-Darwinism that came along in the 20th century when they um, used mutations, unguided mutations, as their explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, 80 years later, 90 years later, we're finding uh, it really is more of a Lamarckian story. That is, that there really is a, a, a response to environmental pressures at the fascinating field that has been growing in, a, in recent decades, and we're now finding more and more evidence that uh, there is a complex uh, machine inside the cell that uh, senses what the need is and re- uh, expresses the genes differently, or in fact, can actually uh, rearrange the genes, mutate the genes. They're called uh, you know, adaptive mutations. So these mutations do not occur at random. They actually are, 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 are blindly. They actually are targeted to the need at hand. It's completely uh, non-Darwinian okay. uh, and, and a, a big shock to evolution. And evolutionists have been resisting the evidence. It's been very controversial within evolution. Right. And, of course, the uh, we're talking, to, by the way, to Dr. Cornelius Hunter on Darwin or Design today. Dr. Hunter is the author of many, many um, important articles and three fantastically important books. We've been discussing Darwin's God and Darwin's Proof. We're going to get to his third uh, book in just a second. But we also, Dr. Hunter, have seen a, an incredible turnaround in the view of junk DNA, have we not? In other words, whereas so many sections of the genome just, uh, you know, three years ago, let's say, were still regarded as a wasteland, a, a gene desert, you know, worthless or at least unimportant to, to living cells. Now, the junk DNA idea is practically obliterated, or at least in the process of. It's getting there, but uh, it's still controversial. But certainly there is, uh, has been a, a strong tradition in recent decades that, uh, the DNA is full of junk. Mm-hmm. And this really lies within a greater tradition that goes back to Darwin of viewing much of biology as a fluke. Mm-hmm. And when you find something you don't understand or doesn't look quite right, well, okay, that's some sort of an evolutionary leftover. It's some sort of junk, a bad design that isn't needed anymore, but it hasn't gone away yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this, this whole junk DNA falls within that bigger tradition. And inevitably, in most of these cases, uh, as, as science uh, progresses, we find functions for these mm-hmm. designs. And we find out, oh, gee, you know, they actually work after all. And so the initial uh, evolutionary interpretation was false. 
Okay. Exactly. As you say, that's what's happening with junk DNA. We're finding more and more function for what they were calling junk. So it's parallel to the old vestigial organ idea that there were these, right. you know, 70 or 80 or whatever, 100 parts of the human body and, and other, let's say, mammalian um, architecture bodies, uh, which did not, like the appendix supposedly, did not have function. And of course, one by one, each of those parts has been found to have a function, especially the appendix now is known to have a very, very important function for those good bacteria that live in our in our bodies and our intestines to be able to go to a safe house when the bad guys come in and then reproliferate after mm-hmm. the, the threat is passed. Let's go into your third book. I know we're maybe bypassing a little bit on the second one. We maybe we can come back to Darwin's proof, but your third book uh, came out most recently and um, and talks about a blind spot. Tell us a little bit about the title and the content. Right. Well, the title Science is Blind Spot, uh, the Unseen Religion of scientific naturalism. So, uh, as we spoke earlier, you do have these religious motivations for evolution. Uh, good theists uh, in, you know, across the globe wanted to distance God from creation for various reasons. Hmm. And so, uh, they really are sure that evolution must be true in one way or another. But simultaneously, you have a tradition growing where uh, they, science must... Um, Stick to naturalism. Only, only explanations. Well, because of that same reason, because God must be excluded from uh, creation, uh, then science must find natural explanations for the origin of species. Okay, let me just jump in for a second and, and remind uh, everybody, including myself, that naturalism uh, is the doctrine that nature alone is at work. In other words, naturalism has this kind of like, all you see out there, nature is all you get. There is no mind, uh, important, uh, you know, transcendent mind or a person above and beyond the universe. At least, at least if there is a mind, that mind does nothing. In other words, uh, so naturalism, I just want to break in and just say that uh, as you're working on this concept, Dr. Cornelius Hunter, I just want to, just kind of bring us up to speed on that. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. That's mm-hmm. good. So, uh, various Christians and, and other theists mandated that, that the world must have arisen just by the, the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, so therefore science must stick to naturalistic explanations. They can't just say, you know, then a miracle occurred or, or then the, this got designed. It must refer only to natural causes. Well, uh, the blind spot uh, comes up in that what if there are things that... Uh, that Science cannot explain love, consciousness, uh, things like this. Um, science knows no bounds, so uh, it really, it, it, it's not. It shouldn't be a problem that science uh, may not be able to explain certain things like love or consciousness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But evolutionists will never know the difference. They'll never know that that, that there's a possible uh, problem there. They will charge forward and try and explain everything not knowing that uh, their methods just aren't going to work. Yeah, we'll hold that thought for just a second. We're coming up against our next break. We're talking to Dr. Cornelius Hunter, author of Science's Blind Spot, along with Darwin's God and Darwin's Proof, and he's exploring new territory we've really not been able to go into in this program for a long, long time. We'll be right back after this break on Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. 
Darwin or Design is brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Begun in 1975 as a student forum on the campus of Princeton University, the C.S. Lewis Society seeks to empower believers and engage skeptics with biblical truth and evidences for faith, communicating the case for Christ and authentic Christianity to those in the academic world, both students and professors, engaging on issues including intelligent design, historical apologetics, and comparative worldviews. In addition to Darwin or Design, the C.S. C.S. Lewis Society also sponsors debates and events worldwide, distributing cutting-edge apologetics tools to workers in over 85 countries, and speaking on college and university campuses both here and abroad. The C.S. Lewis Society continues to provide information, materials, and opportunities key to making a reasoned defense of the Christian faith. To learn more about the C.S. Lewis Society and to access articles and resources mentioned during Darwin or Design, log on today to apologetics.org. That's apologetics. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, focusing on the debate between intelligent design and Darwinism, with your host, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're tackling a very interesting set of questions and topics that we really don't go into as often, perhaps, as we should, and that is the theological angle that is often brought in to support the notion of unguided processes uh, as being the author of life and the author of the diversity around us and, and of humanity in particular. So uh, theological arguments used to prop up Darwinian theory, that's kind of an uh, unusual concept, but it's been very well mapped out and proven, and the evidence is set forth in these key books by Dr. Cornelius Hunter, our guest for the week. Dr. Hunter, of course, uh, maintains this fantastic blog. I just want to give, a again, a plug, a five-star plug to Darwin's God. Uh, that's uh, the name Darwin with an S on the end, hyphen God, dot blogspot dot com. I think you'll want to add that to your list of key sources on the Internet for information and commentary, analysis and commentary almost every day from Dr. Cornelius Hunter, a fantastic scholar. And uh, also, I might add, I, th- I think that you're still um, an adjunct professor at Biola University. Yes, that's right. I'm an adjunct faculty at Biola. Okay, which is like the Harvard of the West Coast of our country, if I can put in a plug for Biola, along with my own college, Trinity College of Florida. So it depends on whether you like the East Coast palm trees or the West Coast. Uh, Bill Carl, I I love the way you roll your eyes. So uh, we're going to be going right now to the the key questions uh, related to Darwin's uh, blind spot, or I should say science's blind spot, because you were explaining to us how evolution and naturalism, this kind of like non-God worldview, uh, really almost has, it has no way within their system to account for the unique wonder and the transcendent reality of mind, of conscience, of love, of justice, of truth, of beauty, etc., as real things. Um, I mean, what, what inspired this book? I mean, what kind of reaction have you gotten from science's blind spot? I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear about this. Well, we've gotten a good reaction from it, and uh, people very appreciate it. Uh, what inspired it was the idea, the claims of evolutionists, that evolution is a fact, and then backing it up with religious statements. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just led to one religious claim after the next, and there really is a, a, a rich history behind that uh, in the Enlightenment uh, years of uh, 
theologians and philosophers, and, and even scientists, mm-hmm. uh, making uh, bold religious claims uh, about how the world must have evolved. Okay. And there really can't be any, uh, you know, God can't have a finger in it. Now, let me just correct one thing. You mentioned that it's, it's godless. It really uh, isn't, they would not put it that way. It, it really, uh, this, this, these ideas do come from God-fearing uh, people, and people of faith, uh, but they just don't believe that, that it makes sense for God to be uh, creating things directly. You know, one of the arguments is that it is beneath God. Uh, God would not create worms and 100,000 species of beetle mm. and crustacea and amphibia. That Those are... Uh, species that are down there in the dirt and the muck, and God wouldn't uh, get down that low. He's too great for that. Hmm. So there's, there's a variety of theological arguments leading to this idea that God would not have created the species. They would have evolved. We're talking today to Dr. Cornelius Hunter on Darwin or Design. God, Dr. Hunter has written three fantastic books. I'm calling it the trilogy, Darwin's God, Darwin's Proof, and now Science's Blind Spot. I recommend all three of them. Uh, all three are going to just deliver a fantastic new insight into the role the theological reasoning is playing as a prop on the Darwin side of this debate. And one of the things I was going to go into real quickly, I mean, as a professor, both of the history of science and the rhetoric of science down here at Trinity College of Florida, uh, where I teach, but also a professor in the Bible Theology and Apologetics Division at Trinity College, I'm looking at right now the fourth chapter of Exodus where it says here, um, God is talking to Moses, of course, at the burning bush, and uh, Moses is complaining in verse 10 of chapter 4 of Exodus, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently, nor in times past, nor since thou hast uh, spoken to thy servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him dumb or deaf? or seeing, or blind, is it not I, the Lord? Uh, would you agree with me that that's a pretty telling statement, at least approaching this question from a Christian point of view? Yeah, I don't like that very much. Why would God do it that way? <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. ought to choose someone powerful and well-spoken. That's right. Uh, so, so, exactly. Sure, so, that, the, that theme runs through Scripture of uh, God doing things in ways that we may not uh, yeah. like. Because he may have, in addition to the overarching purpose, to display his grandeur, his glory, his engineering prowess and genius through the things that he's made, to also create little object lessons, little learning moments, and uh, let us uh, feel, as it were, the need of his strength. And I'm thinking of, of course, Paul saying that he repealed to God repeatedly to take away this um, thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. And God said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so I'm just, um, I'm really struck with the, the breadth and the complexity and the beauty of this view of creation, which you have brought out to us. Uh, the uh, issue of altruism, let me just go to that if I could. I know you've dealt with that in uh, one or more of your works. Altruism, of course, is the concept uh, seen even in nature where people seek the good of others. I remember when my father instituted a uh, uh, Others First Award, we had this kind of metal Oh, P-38 airplane, about about eight inches wide. It was made of, um, I think, stainless steel. And it sat on the shelf. And every week, Dad would say, well, Others First Award goes to 
Jimmy. And we would all applaud my brother, Jim. And and I rarely, once in a while, I'd get it. Tommy gets the others first. So he was teaching us altruism. Yeah, Bill Carl, this is, I'm not making this <laughs> that's, up. That's still, that still kind of rankles a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Jimmy wanted more. Yeah, he wanted more than I did. <laughs> he, was, uh, he, was, he was the other who was first. He was the altruistic, yeah. But of course, altruism in, is seen in nature. If you would just explain what altruism is in nature and why it poses an interesting focus topic for this creation evolution issue. Well, yes, Tom, you, we do see altruism in nature and perhaps most prominently in human beings, uh, and that's where it's easiest to explain, although it is observed in various species. Uh, you know, we've all heard of Mother Teresa, uh, a woman who would travel across the world to help uh, orphans in a different country. Uh, that doesn't work very well in evolution. Uh, they have a difficult time explaining why people would do these things. Uh, it's especially hard to explain is sort of uh, helping out other people that aren't in your clan, aren't in your family or, or closely related or associated with. This is where it gets really difficult. Right. And, and we see this in, in human behavior. So in the, in the last oh, 50 years or so, evolutionists have, have really uh, kind of opened up an, a new field for themselves of speculation. Uh, it's rather humorous to read what they write. They're trying to explain all manner of human behavior, uh, cheating, suspicion, exaggeration, embellishment, hypocrisy, uh, false compliments, uh, self-serving dishonesty. I mean, the list goes on and on of these nuanced behaviors which unguided mutations are supposed to have generated and then they were supposed to have been selected for. And It's really rather comical when you when you read about these things, but... This is what they have to do. They've really kind of remade the theory of evolution in the last 50 years to try and accommodate uh, the altruistic behavior they observe, or even non-altruistic, any kind of behavior. It's really a, a wide field. As I just read, some of these behaviors are not altruistic. Um, but the altruistic behavior is particularly difficult. Uh, it just doesn't make sense, and so they have to... Uh, Yes, I just saw that recently, and I thought, wow. I mean, I know of your blog that uh, we just mentioned, Darwin's God, darwins-god.blogspot.com. And this other uh, special uh, website is called again? Yeah, so it's Darwin's Predictions, all one word, Darwin's Predictions, predictions. very simple, mm-hmm. uh, .com. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just for someone who wants to take some time. It's, it's fairly long, but it goes, someone who's interested in the details, uh, goes through the philosophy of science and how you would judge a theory to begin with, different ideas about that, and then goes through a dozen or so uh, predictions and expectations of evolution that have, have turned wrong. They're fundamental ex- expectations. There's many more where they came from. It's really a challenge to document how wrong this theory has turned out to be. Wow. And so what evolutionists do is they keep on making the theory more complicated and more complicated in order to account for the uh, the evidence, I so noticed they, that. Go ahead. They, they 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 will say all all of the evidence is in favor of the theory. Uh, that's the claim. There is no evidence against evolution. 
But uh, the, the backstory to that is, well, they're just simply accounting for all evidence by making the theory more contorted. I remember uh, going online recently and looking, I googled your name, Cornelius Hunter, and then it brought up somebody who attended a debate, and uh, I guess it was something of a panel discussion, or maybe it was a a lecture by you and a panel discussion at Cornell, I don't know if you remember that, maybe three or so years ago, Mm -hmm. and uh, they were saying at the end of that time that uh, someone asks uh, Dr. Hunter, well, are there predictions made by intelligent design? And of course, a number of them were recently posted at the end of Steve Meyer's new book, uh, The S- a Signature in the Cell, which, of course, we, we recommend highly. Uh, all of the books we're talking about are available at ARN.org on the Internet. Uh, you can go there you know, right away as soon as the program's over, ARN.org. That's the Walmart of intelligent design. Of course, our own website, apologetics.org. We encourage you to come to our own unique apologetics boutique. But uh, the, 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 the concepts that are often brought out about prediction, well, intelligent design does have many, many predictions that it makes. But what you're saying in, the, in terms of the Darwinian predictions, the Darwinian predictions seem to fall short. They fail, right? And you, we have about another minute or here. Yeah, they sure they they fail, and they're so they're so malleable. There really aren't predictions to begin with. So often you get these predictions, and uh, a few years ago, an evolutionist told me uh, a particular prediction that he was sure that you know, if if that was fail if that prediction failed, the whole theory would go down the drain. Hmm. Well, that has failed in the years since, and of course we still have evolution. Very few of these predictions are, are true predictions in that sense. Hmm. They are only uh, predictions of sub-hypotheses that can be sacrificed, and then you just modify the theory to account. Right. Well, we're living in a very exciting time. We're in the, in the midst of the Darwin bicentennial of his birth, just in February past, and of course coming up in here about a month and a half, the, bicenten- or the sesquicentennial, 150th anniversary of the publication of his book. And of course, uh, Dr. Cornelius Hunter, our guest today, has commented on his blog on books by evolutionists. Jerry Coyne has written a strong pro-evolution book. Richard Dawkins has just come out with a major uh, book, which is probably in the bestseller category. So if you want to see his reviews of those books, we encourage you to go to the uh, the same blog we've been mentioning, darwinsgod.blogspot.com. Of course, we're here every week talking about all of these issues pertaining to I, all, all the aspects of creation, evolution, and intelligent design, including the purpose of life. And, of course, our main thrust each week is to explain that the purpose of life is that God created us for himself, for a purpose. And he actually loves us and has made a way for us to have eternal life as a free gift in him. Go check out our, our own website, apologetics.org. We've got more information on this and many other topics. Thanks again for listening on Darwin or Design. We hope to see you back next week.